0: Jay Burwanger is considered by many to be the first Heisman winner of the trophy. Technically, it was Larry Kelly in 1936 after John Heisman died. Our guest in this podcast has a little bit of a different idea for Heisman's first trophy, and it affects the Cumberland game of 222 to nothing. We have Sam Hatcher coming up in just a moment to tell us all about it.
1: This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com.
2: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
0: Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigseanddispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pig Pen, your portal of positive football history. And boy, we have a really treat for you tonight. We have an author of a book that I recently read, and it's on a very famous individual and a very famous game. But there's a lot of things that even I didn't really recognize and uh, the author's name is sam hatcher we have him with us tonight he wrote a book on called heisman's first trophy sam hatcher welcome to the pig pen
1: thank you very much i believe it's my first appearance on the pig pen and it's uh feels very comfortable
0: does it really okay well that's good don't get the mud on your shoes too much here in the pig pen you know well, we want to keep well, you out of the mud
1: mud it will be okay i just don't wear anything else on my shoes okay
0: right okay <laughs> Now, Sam, you wrote a very interesting book. You know, the title sort of uh, takes me uh, as a reader one way. You know, Heisman's first trophy. The first thing that's coming to my mind is the Heisman Trophy, uh, named in honor of John Heisman. So I'm thinking maybe it's going that way a little bit. And then you 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 know dabble in a little bit. Uh, you know, in the precursors that uh, it's on this Cumberland game that he coached of the 222 to nothing game which a famous game in football history that uh, most of our listeners are very familiar with both these things, but you, you tell a sort of a different side of that story, which is is really pretty interesting. And we're going to get to that in a second, but you know, first a uh, little bit about you, you come from the town of where Cumberland college is. That's where you're you're talking to me from right now. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that and your background with Cumberland. Sure.
1: Uh, I was in the news, this is Lebanon, Tennessee. We're uh... 30 miles east of Nashville. We're on I-40. And a lot of people will recognize Lebanon when I'm traveling. They'll say, oh, yeah, you know, we passed through that town. Yeah, it's on I-40. But probably Lebanon, outside of Cumberland University, Lebanon's probably most famous for Cracker Barrel Restaurants. It's the uh, hometown headquarters of Cracker Barrel. Really? uh, And it was started by 12 local friends here, as a matter of fact. And now they have over 650 uh, restaurants nationwide. But, you know, it's still got a small town feeling to it. Lebanon is a town of about 35,000. Uh, the university has grown substantially in the last seven years. We've doubled enrollment. I'm actually chairman of the board of Cumberland. Uh I was elected chairman of the board back in uh, June of this year. So well, I'm beginning.
0: Congratulations. Oh,
1: thank you. Been on the board for uh, probably 40 years. Uh uh my career has been in the newspaper business uh i was the editor of the local uh editor and ceo of the local uh, daily newspaper and then uh with my company ended up with like five community newspapers in middle tennessee so you know uh i'm i'm sort of a big print media guy but uh i I, you know i feel sorry for the print media because we're sort of going the wrong direction i'm afraid but uh now, uh, I do some consulting work, and I enjoy writing, to be honest with you.
0: Well, you definitely, you can see that there's a writing background in, in the way that uh, your writing style is, and you, your, your book is, is excellent. Uh, I know we talked a little bit before we came on here, but you took me, somebody that knew a lot about the, the individuals, especially Coach Heisman, and... A lot about the cumberland game the 222 to nothing game and you educated me in ways that i didn't realize that i could be educated on that game so you know it's a very interesting story and you sort of take it from sort of the cumberland side of things which is not a perspective that we as football historians 100 years later get to appreciate and boy when you read this book it's uh you know a great way to appreciate, but before we go too much further, and we'll, we'll do this again, why don't you let folks know again the title of the book and where they can get a copy?
1: Okay, the title of the book is Heisman's First Trophy, and uh, actually, you can buy it anywhere books are sold. Uh, Amazon carries the books, but uh, several uh, you know, notable bookstores carry the book as well, and you know, it's easy to access. Uh, so.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, nothing easier than that. Go to your local bookstore or, you know, some of the big uh, names on like Amazon on online to get it. So however you prefer now, you know, this is such a treat uh, for me as a reader. I, I read a lot of football uh, history books uh, during a year. You know, I usually go between three and five books a month. I, I'm reading on this, oh. but but you had, uh, you know, some really, some really neat little tricks and treats for me as a reader you would take me down one road of something familiar to me like you know coach Heisman or the story and you would throw some twists and turns in there and bits of history and boy it was just a a delicacy and smorgasbord of uh, information and I I really enjoyed the the way you did it is that a a writing style that uh, you 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 adopted where where did you get that, that kind of writing style from?
1: that that probably comes from, uh, from my newspaper background. I, uh, and maybe from my own, uh, reader habits. Uh, I'm sort of a guy that reads right before I go to bed at night. So, uh, I don't know if you noticed and you, I'm sure you did. The books chapters are rather short and, uh, I hate books with really long chapters. So I tried to write the book, uh, in, in very short chapters that were readable within, uh, you know, a short period of time to sit down uh, with the book. And, uh, tried to make it interesting from that standpoint. And, and the other thing that you pointed out in our earlier conversation is um, uh, I start the book, not, you know, in 1916, I actually start the book with one of the heroes in the book, a guy named George Allen, who was a student at Cumberland at the time, a law school student at Cumberland at the time playing golf with Dwight Eisenhower. And uh, they were playing at burning tree and uh, George Allen after graduation at Cumberland and after beginning his practice of law, he became a consultant to four U S presidents and Eisenhower was one of those four presidents. So he and Eisenhower really developed a really strong, close relationship and they played golf frequently in Washington at burning tree golf course. And uh, I learned this from studying a little bit of history about Eisenhower and then also with about George Allen and, um, I ironically, I had played Burning Tree Golf Course maybe four or five times with a friend of mine who was a member there, and I knew some of the uh, nuances about Burning Tree there. No women allowed on Burning Tree's golf course at all at any time except on Christmas Eve, and they let women come in on Christmas Eve to buy gifts uh, for their husbands or their uh, better halves, you might say. So I I knew a lot about Burning Tree, and it was sort of neat to throw that in the book. And Well, you know, that's probably a pretty good place to start this, this burning, you know, start this story.
0: Yeah, that was sort of the first curveball you threw at me, because the name George Allen to football historian is going to take you to a coach from the the 60s and 70s that, you know, and and I started doing the math in my my head. And we've had some guests that wrote books on George Allen and recently of course the famous LA Rams and Washington Redskins sure. head coach so you made me start doing the math I'm thinking okay Eisenhower's president George Allen in Washington that doesn't that doesn't line up it's probably a couple decades off there so and and you you don't really reveal too much of it at least at least i didn't perceive it of who this george allen was i'm thinking okay maybe our our, the george allen i know is is in there but it's a totally different george allen and you sort of unveil that later later on but uh what, what an interesting way to start it and uh sort of take me down a path i wasn't expecting
1: well ironically i tried every way in the world to connect those two george allens when i first started writing the book i thought well you know that's just too crazy that there'd be one George Allen at Cumberland in Tennessee and another George Allen with the Washington Redskins. I think this may have been Redskins, George Allen's grandfather or father, you know, and, and there were so many people Cumberland has got a really interesting history because it at one time it was known as the Harvard of the South because so many people came to Cumberland's law school. And if they didn't go to Harvard, they came to Cumberland and, As late as the 1970s, mid-1970s, Cumberland had, uh, Harvard had the most members sitting in Congress, and Cumberland had the second most members sitting in Congress. So, you know, it's a pretty distinguished school from that standpoint. And I thought, well, you know, maybe it's possible that these two George Allens are related. Then when I started digging into the George Allen at Cumberland, I found out he was from a small town in Mississippi, and there's no way you're gonna connect those two George Allens, you know. <laughs> so that sort of killed that point. As much as I wanted to make that happen, I couldn't I couldn't stretch it. I just couldn't make that happen.
0: Yeah, that that was sort of took me uh, to another point. I was gonna make. I was gonna make it later, but maybe I'll do it while memory. I didn't realize. Okay, I'm from Pennsylvania, which is probably a little bit more uh, mature in as a as a well, it's a commonwealth, but as one of the fifty states in the United States, than Tennessee is. I, I think it he got statehood the second one that they get statehood if I'm not, if I'm correct. And I am sitting there thinking, okay, I know how many, you know, bigger colleges and stuff we have in, in football history here in Pennsylvania and a lot of football history, but I'm sitting there thinking, okay, you're talking about Cumberland and, you know, some of the, the good teams that they had. And, you know, despite this, you know, shellacking they took, which we'll get into in a second, but, you know, and I know, you know, Sewanee is down there and you have uh, a Vand- about- Vandy and, you know, you just just in that middle Tennessee area back over a hundred years ago. That's really a hotbed for football uh, in in that era, which is uh, I I found that kind of surprising too.
1: Well, and that's really interesting that you say that Uh, it was a hotbed for football, but um, and that's sort of the premise for the book nationally, you know, football wasn't really respected in the South, you know, as we've discussed. And, um, you know, in 1903, Uh, Cumberland beat, I hope I can remember this, Cumberland beat uh, Alabama, LSU, Tulane, Vanderbilt, uh, and tied Clemson in the first bowl played in the South. And ironically, Clemson was coached by John Heisman in 1903. So Cumberland actually had played Heisman once before, and that was in 1903. But, you know, a lot of people uh, don't realize that uh, about the strength of the football in the South. And at that time, and I'm sort of getting into the book, if that's okay, but at yeah. that time, uh, and you know, the, the subtitle to the book is how it the game changed football in the South. And uh, the, uh, the, the story is, is the fact that most of the national media, they were in areas like where you are in Pennsylvania and they were in the Northeast. Uh, and at that time, uh, Harvard, uh, Penn, uh army uh, a lot of the ivy league schools they became uh the national champions because the national media was close to those schools and therefore they knew uh the strength of those teams and when they started voting for the consensus national champion it was always one of those teams from that area because they they weren't familiar with teams in the south and you know it had you know they couldn't jump on an airplane and fly two hours to watch uh so a game in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or in Knoxville, Tennessee, they had to take what they had right there at home and, you know, and pretty much report on those, on those games. And couldn't, really watch, it,
0: couldn't, couldn't watch them on television or listen on the radio either.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, Frank DeFord, uh, the late Frank DeFord did a great commentary on my book uh, several years ago. And uh, I'll never forget it. It was in October uh there was a really good football game on tv that uh, tennessee was playing i'm sort of a tennessee fan and tennessee was playing somebody and my wife and i are sitting in the den we got a fire going in the fireplace about to watch the game and the phone rings and the gentleman on the en- other end says uh in a really deep radio voice uh mr hatcher this is frank DeFord calling uh, i'd like to ask you some questions about your book and so you know i got all excited Uh, jumped up, went to another room to talk with him. And his point was, you claim that this changed football in the South. I want you to prove to me that it changed football in the South. So I go through the story and I go through about uh, how the media covered the game because of the score of the game. It was, you know, nobody had seen a score like 222 to nothing. And I said, because of that, it got so much media attention. Georgia Tech went undefeated in in, uh, the next year, in 1917. And because of the game against Cumberland, the 222 to nothing, people started watching Georgia Tech and watching football in the South, the national media did, and they voted uh, Georgia Tech the consensus national champion then in 1917. So after I went through this long explanation with Frank DeFord, he said, Mr. Hatcher, you have convinced me. I am convinced. And his broadcast. Uh, a week later was uh, that you know this book had changed football in the South, and he sort of made my point on the on the radio. but anyway, one of the good things that happened to me
0: yeah, yeah, you you definitely proved that point, and you you're i mean, you also brought an interesting facet to to this story but that another thing that I didn't realize, you know, we have probably the most famous uh, early journalist of football, a hero of football, Grantland Rice. And if I'm sitting there, if I'm like uh, sort of doing a CSI of this whole thing and I have a map up and I'm putting the pins in and putting the yarns, I'm starting in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is not far from Lebanon.
1: Very close. And,
0: and I'm putting a pin in there because that's where Grantland Rice is from. So he's probably very familiar with Cumberland, I'm assuming. And then you you take that down to Atlanta where this game is, is played and Grantland Rice is, is there at this game, but he's – because he, he wrote, uh, as you say, in the book for one of the Atlanta papers. But he's currently, at that time in 1916, when his game's being played, works for a paper up in New York.
1: New York, that's right. That's exactly right.
0: So you have this big triangle that's Cumberland's really sort of in, involved this heavily. And you have probably the best uh, coverage and most respected journalist of, of sports at that time, Grantland Rice, who's sort of creating sports journalism uh, you know, in a big way, and has a lot of influence on in because he's the guy just uh, less than a decade later takes over for Walter Camp and choosing the all American team and probably national champions and things like that, you know, which Walter Camp had done for the first uh twenty some years of football, thirty years of football.
1: no, I think you're exactly right. and um you know that that's interesting because obviously he had an influence being in New York, Grantland Rice had a tremendous amount of. Uh, Influence, and you know what? What's always sort of bothered me about the story is, uh, and I'm sure you, you've had the same uh, experience, perhaps. But when you say, uh, when I say, uh, I'm on the board at Cumberland University in Lebanon, and then there's somebody that always laughs and says, "Yeah, that's the school who got beat by George Tech, two hundred and twenty-two to nothing." But they never know the story behind the game, and you know that's to me has always been sort of an insult. I've always wanted to explain why Cumberland got beat two hundred and twenty-two to nothing, and it was, you know, it was sort of a David and Goliath story, and um, that's really inspired me to write the book to tell the story. And, and you sort of pointed that out yourself that there's a lot about this this game that people don't realize. You know, on the outset, people n- just generally think, well. You know, tech had a much better team than come on and they just chose to run the score up. Well, you know, that's really not what the deal was at all, you know? So um, I don't want to get into that yet, but you tell me when and we'll get into that. Well, game it,
0: well I, I think, I think we should, but I think for, first of all, I mean, you set, if I look in retrospect, of looking back at the book, you have it set up like a, a normal story of a beginning, middle, and an end. You have a protagonist and an antagonist and the antagonist is kind of surprising when you have a book titled Heisman's First Trophy. I think that's, that's one of the ironies you threw at me. Heisman is almost the antagonist in, in this book because we're looking sort of through the lens of a, a Cumberland perspective and our man, uh, jo- George Allen is our protagonist. Is that fair to say?
1: I have to say you're exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, George Allen was sort of my kind of guy. Uh, he, uh, he often bragged about being second from last in his law school class. Uh, he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't the brightest, uh, uh, law school graduate by any means, but, uh, he had a overwhelming personality, uh, was very popular on campus. And, uh, you know, he, and what people don't really understand either, uh, you know, at this time in 1916, the guy that was the manager of the team, who was George Allen, a student manager, he was like an athletic director. You know, he's the one that made up the schedule. He saw that the uniforms got washed week to week. He packed them on a, uh, in bags to take on a train wherever they were going to play. Uh, so, you know, this guy was sort of in charge of, of the program the athletic program at the university. And, um, you know, it was George's fault that they got into the predicament they got in with with Heisman and Georgia tech. Uh, if you might, if I may, I'll sort of go yeah, on. In. Yeah. But
0: yeah. Why don't you tell us what, what George did to make Georgia tech, uh, sort of angry with, with Cumberland?
1: Well, it actually started in the spring of 1916. <clears throat> uh, John Heisman was also the Georgia tech baseball coach and he had a nationally ranked baseball team that he brought to Lebanon to play Cumberland university in baseball. And, um, uh, it was a big deal for the, you know, as you can imagine, for a town, a small town the size of Lebanon at that time, probably had maybe uh, 2,000 people living in Lebanon at that time. And here's this Georgia Tech team out of Atlanta, a nationally ranked baseball team coming to play uh, Lebanon, or excuse me, Cumberland's baseball team. So, you know, it was a big deal. The town got excited about it. And so uh, George Allen, again, was the manager of the baseball team and, not wanting Cumlin to be embarrassed. Uh, he sort of, uh, he sort of pulled a fast one on John Heisman and he went to Nashville and got some uh, semi-pro players from Sufferdale That was the uh, Nashville semi-pro league. They played at a stadium called Sufferdale in Nashville and he brought those uh, eight or 10 players or six, or eight players back to Lebanon and suited them up in Cumlin uniforms and let them play the Georgia tech team. And, the bottom line was at the end of the game, Cumberland won that game 22 to nothing and beat the Georgia Tech nationally ranked baseball team. And when the game was over, Heisman sort of, you know, starts looking around the field. And, you know, some of these college students looked like they were 35 and 40 years old. And Heisman figured out that, you know, he'd been duped. And he says to George Allen, you know, I'll get you for this at some point. I'm going to get you. Cause Heisman left there really, uh, excuse me, po'd about what had happened to him at Cumberland. So, uh, you know, at that time there was, there, there was not, uh, an NCAA. So there's nobody really patrolling, uh, college athletics, so to speak. And, uh, George Allen thinks, well, you'll never get me again because I'll be gone. You know, I'm graduating from school and I'll be out of here. So that was in the spring of 1916. And, uh, Later uh, that year, the Cumberland Board uh, had, Cumberland had sort of fallen on hard times financially, and several of the players had left to prepare to go to a war, World War I, and um, Scooby didn't have the resources to have a football team in the fall. So the board made the decision, the Cumberland Board made the decision that they would do away with football and just not have a football program in the fall because it would obviously save money in a, you know, a number of ways. So uh, the president of the university told George Allen to notify all the teams on the schedule that Coleman would not be playing them in the fall because they weren't going to have a team. And George Allen did that. He notified every one of the schools but overlooked George Tech and did not notify George Tech. And uh, that's where the rubber sort of hits the road because um, that's how Heisman decided he would get some revenge and get – you know, get back at Cumberland. Uh, so, uh, you know, sort of the rest of the story. So, uh, George Allen writes Heisman and says, look, I'm sorry, I should have notified you earlier, but we're not going to have a team in the fall, so we won't be coming to Atlanta to play you. And Heisman writes back it, oh, yeah, you will. You'll be, coming. You'll be coming to Atlanta to play this game, uh, or you're going to face uh, damages of a lawsuit, uh, civil lawsuit and Heisman writes, or excuse me, George Allen writes back and apologizes and said it's his fault. He's the student manager and it's his fault. Heisman writes back and says, I don't care. Uh, you're going to play this game or cumlin will uh, be responsible for the damages for not playing the game, which at that time um, would have been probably close to $100,000 in today's money. And the truth of the matter is it, it could have closed and probably would have closed the doors at Cumberland University. They would have they couldn't have come up with the money to pay, to pay the George tech. And they would have probably closed the school. So I'm really going through the whole story, but.
0: Well, well, uh, let, let, if, if I could pause yeah. just a second, just to, sure. to highlight sure. a couple things. Okay. For, you know, first of all, you know, that, that baseball game and Heisman's the baseball coach Heisman's a, a pretty big name in 1916. You know, he, he's uh, you know, we, we know as football historians, he was one of the major proponents, if not the a proponent of in 1906 with the, the football revisions of you know instituting the forward pass to the game yeah. and he had been at you know a variety of colleges including like you mentioned earlier Clemson and Georgia Tech and uh you know some others that around so this is a, a well-established probably a, a, one of the most uh respected college football coaches around and there really wasn't pro football at that time. So this is like the man in in football. This is like, uh, you know, Saban would be today, you know, coming in uh, coaching a baseball team would probably maybe be a good uh, correlation to the modern viewer. So this is a big deal. And you have these, these uh, gents at at Cumberland, they're excited to come in here and like, and you build it up that Georgia tech has a pretty strong baseball team too under Heisman and uh, Cumberland's no slouch, but, you know, getting those recruits, but they, they have, you know, the people of middle Tennessee and the, the, the Cumberland and national area are looking at this. It's, it's one of those uh, dates on their calendar. I'm sure they had circled and said, Oh, Heisman and Georgia tech are coming to play you know, on on our baseball diamond and we're going to be ready for them. So that, that was a big deal. And then when they won, I mean, what a perfect way to rate you. You couldn't have made this up. It's almost like Shakespearean to have a 22 to nothing game foreshadow a 222 to nothing
1: <laughs> is that right oh, it's
0: it beautiful it's beautiful yeah. and you right. can't make that you can't make that up so uh you
1: exactly right crazy so you know uh george allen feels badly about what's happened and he comes back to campus and uh the kappa sigma fraternity they love this story Um uh, so he comes back to cummins campus and he organizes uh 14 kappa sig fraternity brothers uh, to go to Atlanta to play Georgia Tech. And they go down there to play Georgia Tech to save their university because George Allen tells them, look, it's my fault. I'm the one that screwed up. But if we don't put a team in uniform and go to Atlanta and play Georgia Tech, uh, our school is probably going to close. And I don't want that on my shoulders. And he convinced the Kappa Sig fraternity to take fourteen players, get on a train, and go to Atlanta and play George too.
0: Yeah, I, I'm still amazed too. I mean, George, George Allen was he was a hero after that baseball game. I mean, yeah. you, you tell about parties and bands playing, and he celebrated yeah. for weeks afterwards. And they're patting him on the back and a great deal. He goes home for the summer and you know works his summer job to make money for school. Comes back in the fall and. Now, all of a sudden, you know, knock at the door. The president of the college comes in and his, his buddies are still there, you know, patting him on the back. Hey, yeah, I remember that back last spring. You know, this is a great deal. And then the president sort of takes him out and uh, to a private place and drops the bomb on him. Hey, uh, Georgia Tech. Yeah, Georgia Tech may sue us and, and close our doors, or we got to play football for a, a team that we just, uh, closed shop a few months ago on so you know he he goes from hero to to almost goat uh at least in the eyes of the 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 faculty at, at the school i'm sure his his, his uh chums and uh, the, the frat houses and the the folks in the community are still behind him say hey this is our guy man he he beat the big dog you know it's uh so this is kind of a, a real ironic situation for for george and you know very troubling to him you know he he takes it very personally and like you said he has to he has to fix this issue that he sort of created by uh you know but i i just can't believe the, the the whole abrupt halt and of this whole uh momentum for for mr uh allen here so that's that's kind of amazing
1: well and it is amazing you're exactly right and um you know he was obviously gifted in a number of ways and um you know these uh, Kappa Sig uh, kids—I'd call them at that time. You know, several of them had never played football at all. And uh, you know, I know you read. There's a sort of a humorous story in the in the book where and and you know, uh, sort of parentheses in this. A lot of people ask me, so where do you find this stuff? How did you know about all this? Well, <clears throat> uh, number one, uh, on the game itself. Uh, The Atlanta uh, paper carried, you know, factual uh, stats about the game. Uh, But um, these players had reunions ever so many years after this game. They would have uh, maybe, you know, a a 25-year reunion, a 50-year reunion. And these stories were swapped during the game. And then at one point, the historian at Cumberland University was in school uh, in 1916 when uh, this game was played. So he recorded a lot of the things about the game in a history book about Cumberland. And, you know, I took a lot of the excerpts from that, but you know, I was amazed at the number of uh, being a print media guy myself. I was amazed at the number of stories that were carried nationwide about the dead gun game. There was a small uh, town in Texas that carried the, the story. And the, this story didn't run to like maybe 10 days or two weeks after the game was played because You know, it took a while to get the story from the East Coast to the Midwest or the West, you know, and, and, or Southwest, I guess, in that case. But the, so this Texas newspaper carries the story and they say, uh, in their headline, uh, let's see, the headline was, I believe, uh, University of Georgia beats Cumberland 222 to nothing. They had the score, right, but they had the wrong school because uh, they had the <laughs> University of Georgia instead of Georgia Tech. But, you know, again, that just tells you about how much print uh, coverage the dadgum game got. And, you know, it, it was significant. I didn't finish the story, I guess, but when uh, John Heisman toward the end of the game was going down his bench, making sure all of his players got in the game, as you see today, you know, with, with the score being that much uh, – he goes down the bench, and he finds a kid on the bench with a uh, a blanket covering himself up. And Heisman pulls the blanket back, and it's a Cumberland player. So Heisman thinks, well, you know, this kid has had a concussion in the game and has gone to the wrong side of the field, and he's sitting on the wrong bench. And he says to the kid, he says, son, you're a Cumberland player, and you're on the wrong side of the field. You're on the wrong bench. And the kid looks up at Heisman, and he says, yes, sir, I know that. But he said – if I go back to that other side, they're going to put me in the game, and I'd rather just stay over here if it's okay to you, Coach Hoden. <laughs> I'd stay over there. But um, you know, there are a lot, a lot of funny things about the game, really itself.
0: Yeah, you you bring up a, a lot of little. I mean, that that was a hilarious story. I thought it not really entertaining, and uh, but there, there was little tidbits you had in there, and you you do it in a unique way where you you have the story sort of on the white background with the black text, and you have these little gray boxes pop up and you're bringing these tidbits of these little side stories of history of, you know, whether it be about George Allen or coach Heisman or one of the other characters, you know, and one of them that you have, you're, we're in the middle of this game, you know, your coverage in a game, you have probably, I don't know what, four or five chapters on the game itself at the end. Oh. So going through the game, play by play, painful uh, point by point that, uh, you know, they're just racking up, you know, all these 222 points in this game and you all of a sudden one comes up that you say, you know, I forget exactly how you said, it, but possibly the first occasion of a, a huddle in a football game. That's what, what, true. Yeah. Why don't you, why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: So, uh, uh, Cumberland would was going back to sort of get their breath and sort of figure out what they were going to do next. And, um, uh, at that time, they didn't necessarily, teams didn't necessarily do that. And that was sort of the introduction of the huddle to college football when Cumberland did that and went back and, you know, would would sort of like figure out where they are and what they were going to do next. And that, you know, that was the introduction of the huddle as far as, uh and that, that's been recorded too in different places. You know, uh, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer did a tremendous story on this game. And being from your neck of the woods, uh, that might be of interest to you, but uh, they actually did uh, uh, some history about the letter that Georgia Tech uh, sent to Cumberland, threatening the lawsuit, and actually published the letter. I believe, if I remember that correctly, it was actually published in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm sort of skipping around on I mean, you. I'm sorry about that.
0: But- no, no. Well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that letter because I wanted to bring up the point of the letter that George Allen. Uh, sort of hand wrote and got approved from the, the president of the college president Hill and sent back to accept the, the challenge that they were not going to pay the $3,000. They were going to play the game. And, you know, it's, I don't know, you know, it it brings up sort of the, the character of what George Allen must have been. He was, he was a confident guy, sometimes a little bit arrogant, maybe, you know, this 20 something year old kid, maybe his, his youthful exuberance, uh, you know, overtook him at this moment but he made a statement at the end of that letter telling heisman and the president of georgia tech that they were going to play the game that sort of you know i don't don't know if it irked the fire but you you had it i think you even mentioned a book that heisman must have took pause and had to ponder on a little bit so why don't don't you share with us what was in that letter
1: you might have to help me on that one a little bit i'm not sure that i can but well he
0: well he goes through and, and tells heisman in in the, i forget who the uh, president of the college is of georgia tech that he yeah yeah we're going to be down we're going to have men down there on on this october 7th and 1916 in atlanta we're going to play the game and he ends it with a statement sort of like a a postscript oh yeah and we're going to win yeah. You know? oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah 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 Yeah, we're not coming just to uh play we're going to win the game yeah yeah um... <laughs> Uh, that's funny about that, uh, which sort of goes back to uh, uh, at the halftime of the game, and you probably recall that. Um, Heisman tells his team, you know, they're up 111 to nothing at the halftime. And Heisman warns the Georgia Tech team, watch out for those coming boys because you don't know what they're going to be doing next in the second half. Keep Be alert. Watch out. Don't take this for granted that we got to win. And I'm assuming that goes back to uh, his baseball experience in, in Lebanon would be my only thought about that. And, and you know, that, that came right from the players, the Georgia Tech players themselves, that uh, that line did, because that was something that came out of one of the reunions that they had said that Heisman warned them, you know, be careful down in the second half. We're up 100 points or 111 points, but watch out for coming because you don't know what those boys are going to do in the second half.
0: Yeah, And, and that's sort of, sets up a, a few moments later in time from Heisman telling his players that, you know, they come out of the half, uh, you know, George Allen's trying to protect his guys from, you know, getting their heads knocked off. He wants to get everybody home in one piece and he knows they're, they're not going to win this game, you know, 111 and nothing. Like you said, halftime. So Allen approaches the, the officials of the game and it makes a request and why don't you tell us th- that that's that scenario the request he makes at halftime and then heisman's response to that
1: yeah about uh shortening i assume about shortening the game yes uh heisman agreed to that and um i'm not sure i remember the exact verbiage in that but uh you know as, as i told you earlier it's funny about this when you start asking questions i swear to people i did read the book but sometimes i forget but uh You might have to help me with that part of that.
0: But but Alan goes to the officials and he says, hey, can we shorten the half? And I I thought it was an odd request. He asked for 12 and a half. I think if I'm in his thing, I'm saying, hey, can we have like five minute (laughs) quarters? But he asked for 12 and a half minute quarters. And the officials are saying, well, okay, but we have to get Coach Heisman to agree to it. So they go over to Heisman and Heisman just, you know, like you just said, you just got done telling his team, "Hey, watch out for these guys, because remember what happened up in up in Tennessee. You know these guys are clever and they're shifty, and you can't trust them." And he sort of gives that same message to the officials that come to him and say, "Hey, you know, I, 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 you know we've been talking to Coach over there. Heisman has no idea what they're talking about. He can, he's looking across the field That's- and." seeing a conversation. Yeah. So maybe that's, that's that refreshment on that conversation that Heisman tells the officials.
1: Yeah. And I, uh, again, I'm sort of blank on that, but I do remember that uh, he he did say, you know, uh, it's sort of like no funny business now, or, you know, is this going to be the truth or, or is this a trick? You know, it was basically that. And uh, uh, Heisman didn't have a whole lot of trust in, in George Allen at that time, for sure. <laughs> you know, not at all.
0: And you can't blame them either. <laughs>
1: no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. You know, a funny thing about the game, uh, there were no first downs in the game, which I don't know if there's ever been a football game played where there would be no first downs.
0: I I can't think of one where I've ever, I've ever seen that before.
1: And Cumberland, Cumberland's longest play was a 14-yard pass. So, you know, when you say that, when I've spoken to civic clubs and other groups and I say that, they say, oh, you made a mistake because – they must've gotten the first down if they threw a 14 yard uh, pass. Well, it was fourth and 22. So they, they didn't get a first down. They were eight yards short of getting their first down with their 14 yard pass. So, you know, it always brings a roar of laughter when I tell that, but that's as close as they got.
0: Um, it,
1: yeah. it, you know, crazy, uh, no first downs record scoring, of course, um,
0: Uh, most kickoffs of any game I believe
1: yeah most kick and most extra points uh, there was a um, a kid from uh, Johnson City Tennessee which is in the Tri-Cities area in East Tennessee that was the uh, kicker for Georgia Tech and you know I think that's a record extra points you know that he kicked in that game
0: I'm not sure if if you tell but I I believe uh, they ended up Georgia tech ended up having to switch kickers because the, the original did, kicker, they, <laughs> got, I think he got too tired kicking all those extra points. He had to they,
1: get they replaced. Did. That's exactly right. They did. You know, uh, and I, I hate to keep shifting back and forth on you, but, um, um, I, I wanted to put out, I wanted to point out to some people, uh, a, a little bit about history and about, uh, you know, I, I included a line or two in there about, uh, the Kennedy Nixon debate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people don't remember that, but I think that's an important part of history and they need to know about that. And, um, uh, uh, from the standpoint of the economy, uh, and this won't mean much probably to your people in Pennsylvania, but, uh, there's a five-star hotel in Nashville called the Hermitage Hotel. And, uh, I have George Allen going to the Hermitage Hotel to so sort of, Make his plans on what he's going to do to sort of, you know, make things right at Cumberland <clears throat> when he finds out that uh, Heisman is pressing this lawsuit. And uh, at at that time, you could stay. Uh, I made a note of this. One night at the Hermitage Hotel cost uh, three dollars and fifty cents, and a gallon of Jack Daniels whiskey cost three dollars. Um, <laughs> So the uh, Hermitage Hotel is in downtown Nashville. It's across from the, uh, diagonally across the street from the Tennessee Performing Arts Center. And my wife and I, and the president of Cumlin and his wife, we had season tickets, uh, excuse me, we had season tickets to the Performing Arts Center. And <clears throat> to tell you how things have changed in recent years. My wife suggests, well, on Friday night, instead of us driving back to Lebanon, why don't we just spend the night at the Hermitage Hotel, have breakfast on Saturday morning and come back to Lebanon the next day? Nashville has gotten so compact with people at night. Uh, it's just amazing how many people are on the streets in Nashville now at night. And, you know, it would take us 30 to 40 minutes to get to the interstate to drive back to Lebanon. So uh, I said, well, that's a great idea. i tell you what I'll do. I will check with the Hermitage Hotel on Monday, and I'll book us two rooms, one for the president and his wife, and for me and my wife, and uh, we'll stay at the Hermitage next month when we come to TPAC. So I called the Hermitage Hotel, and for one Friday night room, a standard room now at the Hermitage Hotel, it was $1,100. Wow. So it's gone quite a ways from the 3 dollars and a half in 1916. And I, you know, I I think it's sort of important for people to know that, that, you know, to know a little bit about the history of, you know, from where we've come and, um, uh, you know, what things were like then, you know, uh, the cars that they drove and just, I I wanted to include as much as I could in the book about football history, about, you know, there's a line about where the red elephant tag came from for uh, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, There's a, uh, there's talk of, uh, there's a um, there's quite a bit of references to uh, uh, Georgia uh, uh, University of Georgia and Alabama and how Vince Dooley and Bear Bryant uh, sort of got at each other's throats. Uh, you know, so I, I tried to sort of mix as much.
0: You you, uh, you had some Civil War references and Civil War references and you know in, in respect to how Cumberland survived. I mean, I, th- I thought that was all that was all brilliant, and it was. Yeah. Uh, very, very engaging as a reader to to listen to and read. So, yeah, very, very well done on that. So, so how, okay, now you sort of make a, a broad statement. I think we said this a little bit at the beginning of, you know, this may have been one of the most important games to bring uh, the spotlight to football in the South, which, you know, in recent times is that's, that's the mecca of, you know, where the the powerhouse of football is the sec you know everybody until this year with michigan winning it i think that either clemson or bama or lsu or or you know auburn somebody was winning it from from the south so tell us a little bit how exactly did that bring the the spotlight that you know a a 222 to nothing shellacking uh to, to the south
1: well, the you know, the uh, again, the print media was, uh, the stories were, and they were coming out of the Northeast. And you got to remember the Northeast controlled college football at that time. And the story that came out of the Northeast essentially was, uh, one team beats another team, 222 to nothing. So this team must have a lot of offense. They must have a really good defense because the other team never scored on them no one reported that Cumberland didn't have a football team in 1916 and sent 14 Kappa Sig guys to Atlanta, Georgia to play the game. So, but you can imagine if you read that in the print media, the story was uh, Georgia Tech beats Cumberland 222 to nothing. And because of the score was so exaggerated, so large, that meant other newspapers across the country carried the story. of the game. you know, if it had been a, uh, 14 to nothing or a 50 to nothing game. It wouldn't have been so unusual at that time, but 222 to nothing made that put the spotlight on football in the South and and made the difference. So, you know, I always like to say in a lot of ways uh, Alabama, Georgia, uh, these teams in the South owe Cumberland a lot because Clemson, because if it hadn't been for the Cumberland Georgia Tech game, uh, you know, uh, there'd be no spotlight on football in the South because I know that's a <laughs> embellishment and exaggeration but uh you know at the time it was it was the only thing you know to report really that was sizable i mean it was a major news story a major news story
0: yeah that's now i guess so, something else that's kind of interesting okay we think of you know the heisman trophy and we think that is you know that's the the honor that goes to the best college football athlete of the year I mean it's I mean I I don't think it's defined as that, but that's what it's become as us the public. We we associate it with that. If you're the Heisman trophy winner, you're the guy in college football. And you have so Heisman's name is sort of associated with, you know, good sportsmanship and playing by the rules. And you know, that's sort of the I don't know that that's that's sort of the the aura that the name Heisman comes probably a lot from the trophy. And you you bring in a statement of coach Heisman saying, you know, he's, he's against the rules makers of how they're choosing the national champions. Because at that time, like you said, they're looking at the scores and however lopsided your scoring is against your opponents for the year. That's a major factor in you being crowned a national champion or the mythical uh, national champion at the time. They really didn't, I think announce that these are a lot of retroactive things, but he he's arguing the point, but yet, He's the coach that made the, the big, most lopsided score in football history. Uh, thing. So it's kind of another irony that comes up out of that, which was no, I
1: about that. And I think, you know, he was showing that, uh, you know, he could beat this team that didn't really have a team by that score and get that kind of press off of it. And and it was meaningless. And he knew it was meaningless, you know, that, that he beat Coleman 222 to nothing. He knew that. You know, um, I thought he's a really interesting guy from a lot of different um, standpoints. But, uh, uh, you know, he was a Shakespearean actor. And uh, when he was at Auburn, I believe it was at Auburn, uh, in the summers he would tour and do uh, stand-up Shakespearean plays by himself to raise money for the football team so they would have money uh, come fall and I was telling a friend of mine, you know, about NIL. I was telling this the other day and I said, you know, who knows? It may have been John Heisman that started the NIL process back in 1916 or whenever, you know, yeah. because he raising money for his football team. Uh, jokingly, I said that, but <laughs> uh, he, you know, he he was a really interesting guy from another standpoint and um he, his divorce, I thought, was really interesting, and a lot of people don't know that's why he left Georgia Tech. But as he was going through the divorce with his wife, excuse me, with his wife, uh, you know, he was wanting to do that in a way that uh, was not upsetting, uh, that didn't place a cloud over their marriage, so to speak. And he told his wife, he said, "Wherever you choose to live." Uh, I will either stay here or I will leave Atlanta. And he said, "You you choose. If you want to stay in Atlanta, I'll leave. If you don't, I'll stay in Atlanta and coach at Georgia Tech." And his wife made the decision that she wanted to stay in Atlanta, and that's why he resigned from uh, Georgia Tech was because of the divorce. Now, you know how how many times would that happen today? That's not going to happen today.
0: No, no, not not for that that reason. But he might be. The first uh, major college coach to have that abrupt, unexpected, "Hey, I'm taking off," you know, yeah. like you know, like uh, Kelly did at Notre Dame to move to LSU recently, or you know, Coach Saban this year, you know, "Hey, I'm I'm done coaching for Alabama." You know, those fans are probably going, "Oh my gosh, what?" You know, here's our guy that uh, brought national championships and honor back to the the programs. So, but yeah, it was it was interesting the way too that you had Heisman presenting that to the board of directors of georgia tech he invites them over to his home you know yeah, yeah. I, I i doubt that the uh, nick saban had uh the alabama folks over in his living room and said hey i i quit you know i'm sure it didn't, didn't go down like that but different time and just a very respectable way to do it to be on his own home turf to to do that
1: and that was recorded i believe in atlanta journal that 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 story was that they had gone there for a a breakfast and that, you know, he had made the announcement and the explanation was made as to why, you know, he was leaving. So I'll wow.
0: well, uh, I, I tell you what, that, it was just a, a brilliantly told story from so many different ways uh, you know, folks, I, I, I highly recommend this. You're going to be entertained. There's a lot of little tidbits and nooks and crannies to the story that Sam wrote and telling the story and bringing the bits and pieces of history. We're only touching on some of them. So make sure you get a copy of this. Uh, like Sam said, you can get it on Amazon or your, your favorite bookstore. And Sam, why don't you go ahead and tell us the, the title again?
1: It's Heisman's First Trophy. Uh, and I I, I I promise you it it will not bore you. Uh, not because I've wrote it, but just because the story is really interesting story. I, I think most of your readers, if they like football, they'll find this is a, you know, it's really interesting story to be honest with you. Thank you so much for letting me be in the Big pen tonight. I've really enjoyed this very, very much. Great interview. I got to tell you, you may be the best one I've done. I've been doing these interviews for several years. The book is in its fourth printing and uh, it's done really well. It's sold really well. And I got to tell you, this is the best interview I've ever had on the book, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this.
0: Well, well, Sam, I, I thank you for the kind words, and I, in return, thank you for coming on here and sharing and opening up your book to us and telling the story and your background and giving us this view of Cumberland, uh, you know, these, these these folks that took the worst uh, beating in, in football history. and. <laughs> giving a a little bit of humanistic uh, nature to them and we can feel their, their pain and their joy. And uh, you know, and and something we didn't even say is when Cumberland comes back from that, that loss, they're celebrated in Lebanon and Nashville.
1: Right. They're heroes. They're heroes. They saved the university and they're heroes.
0: And bands playing and thousands uh, watching the train come in for a team that got beat 222, nothing. I'm I'm sure that uh, a team that gets beat sixty to nothing today doesn't go back to their campus and have everybody waiting for them.
1: I guarantee you that's the truth. At least not
0: at least not with kind words. Maybe they're they're with yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the boo birds or they're maybe <laughs> but yeah. Sam, again, thank you so much for for joining us tonight and uh, telling your story.
1: Thank you, thank you. Uh, best wishes to you. Thank you very much. Bye bye
0: picking up at the clock the time's running down we're going to go into victory formation take a knee, and let this baby run out thanks for joining us we'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast
2: on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch Podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.